Now turn with me in your Bibles to the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 12. If you have a a letter to write that's uh, got some important stuff to say, very often the temptation is to kind of break up the ground in the first three quarters of a letter and say what you really want to say in the last bit. With New Testament letters, every bit matters from the first word to the last word. All are inspired, but that includes the end of the letter. All these statements that we read, Paul has important stuff to say to them and through God's word to us. So let's read the end of the letter from chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, and when Paul says that, he's writing to everybody in the church family in Thessalonica, and by application, all of us sitting here and in the other services. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, let's just pray for God's help. Father, we love your words. We love your word. We pray that you would speak. It be your voice that we hear. And pray that it would fall not on deaf ears, but on ears that are listening. Pray that it would not fall on hearts that are cold or indifferent, but hearts that are receptive, that you might transform our will and thereby our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this church in Thessalonica was a a young church, a young church in years. It was barely a year old when Paul wrote this letter to them. But it was a strong church. It had started well and had gone on well. It was committed to the simple gospel, committed to the word of God, and committed to see beyond its own walls to the wider work of the church. That wonderful verse in chapter 1, when the gospel rang out like a sounding bell from them to the region and to the city. They're strong, but they have been and are still going through a tough time. Their convictions had led to pressure being put upon them. And under pressure, Paul does not want to presume on their strength. And so he writes out of love for them to encourage them that they might go on standing fast in the Lord. Now in this closing section, Paul has, I think, 21 things to say. And uh, you'll have appreciated that when I read it, that he has a whole series of kind of bullet point exhortations. Now, neither you nor I have the courage for a 21-point sermon on a sunny day. But thankfully, and God is good, 21 divides by 7 to give us 3. 
so we've got a three-point sermon. <laughs> now, let me encourage you that I've not kind of put this through the mangle to systematize this into three blocks. These are, I think, the natural three stepping stones in this uh, end point of the letter. So what we get is uh, three exhortations, or three groups of exhortations, in 12 to 22, the gist of this, followed by a prayer and a promise, and some personal remarks from the Apostle Paul to end. And you can see that structure laid out inside the service sheet. You might have that in front of you as we study this. Firstly then, verses 12 to 22, three exhortations. And in each of these uh, groups of exhortations, a unifying theme, if you like, is Paul's concern to impress on the church in Thessalonica the importance of right relationships. So three spheres of relationship. Number one, the relationship between the church, between the church family, if you like, and those in leadership over them in that church. Secondly, a right relationship with one another across the church family. And thirdly, a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. These are the last words of exhortation to the church in Thessalonica. Make sure, Paul says, in your church family that these relationships are strong and how wise and how perceptive the apostle is. In normal church life, let alone when a church is under pressure and feeling the strain, very often it's the relationships that come under pressure. And when these key relationships, either between the members of a church and those in leadership, or between the members of a church one to the other, or thirdly, between the members of a church and the Lord Jesus, when these relationships are strained, there is strain in the church, and all of a sudden that strong church finds itself not standing fast in the Lord, not committed to the simple gospel, not living by the word of God, and certainly not looking out and working for the wider context of the gospel. So you saw on the screen earlier these global and national gospel partners. When a church is living through a period where these relationships are broken down, it's not looking out to the wider work of the gospel in the world. Now, it's really important that we remember that Paul is writing to a church family here, to a community of believers. He is not writing to individual Christians. Now, he, what he says, of course, has relevance to you as an individual, but it has more relevance in terms of the context of this letter to our whole church family. He said, get everybody together in one room. Now, we're doing it in three shots today. But get everybody together in one room and read this out so that everybody hears everything at the same time. That's the context of this. Whenever he uses the word, to all the brothers, he means every single person in the church family. I want you to read this out to the whole church. I want them all to hear it together. That's the idea. That's the context. And so every single person is to listen. Paul says, every single person is to act on what they hear. Why? Because. And this, this is logically true. Every single person, every one of you makes a difference to these three key relationships in a church. Now, let's look at each one. Key relationship one, a right relationship with your leaders. 
verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul is speaking here to the members of the church, exhorting them to respect their leaders and to esteem them very highly in love. And he is implicitly speaking to those leaders as to how they should lead and thus merit the respect and esteem and love of the members. So who are the leaders of a church? In the New Testament, leaders in churches are referred to as elders. That is the most common word. Other words are used to describe leaders, overseers and bishops. They mean all the same thing. And so Paul is asking the church members in Thessalonica to respect the elders of the church. And the application, Paul is asking you to respect me and the other elders in our church. He is asking you to esteem us highly in love. That's what he is saying. Now, all my instincts, and you can understand this, are to introduce at this point a hundred caveats lest this comes across the wrong way. I can't help but be the preacher at the same time. But let's not do that for a moment. Let's hold the line. And listen to what he says. He says, respect those in leadership among you. The elders. What does respect mean? It means to acknowledge or submit to their leadership, to their oversight. In God's plan for his church, local churches are to have leaders or elders, and we are to submit to their leadership, their oversight. That does not mean that leadership or decisions of elders are not to be questioned. If, for example, decisions taken are unbiblical, they should be questioned. If, for example, I preach or the other preachers preach a sermon that is not out of the Bible or turns and twists what the Bible says to say something else, you should question that. Or sometimes elders make decisions, lead a church in a particular direction that is not unbiblical, but just daft or unwise. The wrong thing at the wrong time, the wrong way. Just too much stuff all at once. And you are right to question that, to comment on that. And I hope you know that when I speak with you, after the niceties have been observed, I'm always just itching and asking you questions to work out just to sense what you're thinking, because I want to know. And my fellow elders are of the same mind. Good leaders listen, or should do. Now, all that said, the principle is very important. Respect those in leadership among you and esteem them highly in love. That phrase is a very powerful phrase, esteem them very highly in affection and love. Honor them, value them, love them. Pray for them. Now, I've done well to hold back on the caveats long enough. It's time to put us as leaders, as elders in the dock. Are we up to the task? Are we deserving of your respect and esteem and love? Now, Paul has a lot to say in the New Testament about what leaders should do to merit respect. He says three things here. Firstly, he says, hard work. Respect, though, verse 12, who labor among you. Verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hard work, labor, graft. Now, a lot of the Bible commentaries here feel they need to spiritualize this. Now, I think, that's true. 
the work has to be spiritually directed. It has to be Bible teaching. It has to be discipling of people in the Lord Jesus. It has to be meeting with people, for example, who are looking to become members and profess faith and ensuring that they are clear Christians. It has to be partnering with our gospel partners around the world. It has to be spiritual, but it's hard work and hard graft that goes into that. And let's not shy away from that. The word minister means server. Respect them if they work hard to lead the church well. Respect them, esteem them, love them if they put in the hours for the sake of the gospel in the church that they lead. Now, there's a wrong kind of hard work when it gets out of control. Most ministers, I'm told, the problem is not underwork but overwork. And that's because it's a vocational life. Most ministers and elders should be needing to be reined in for overwork and you'll be glad that I've got a reigning in team now here. You've got to pray that I'll listen to them. But you see the principle there, hard work, hard work, hard work, hard work is important. But here's another little twist in the tale. Only respect them and esteem them and love them if they do the work for the right motivations. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul is telling them what he has been praying for them in chapter 1, verse 3. He's been praying for them. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. There's that word labor. It's a labor of love. The kind of leaders you are to respect are those who work hard because they love you. You see, the Bible speaks not just about what leaders do, but why they do it. When we ordain our new elders in a couple of weeks, I'll preach on 1 Peter 5. Peter's focus is on the attitude of the elder who exercises oversight willingly, eagerly, as an example. A right attitude, a labor of love. I want to look you in the eye. I'm going to look somebody in the eye. Who am I going to look at in the eye? All of you, look at my eyes. I want to say to you, and I'm not the kind of person that says this kind of thing, if you know me well enough, I want to say to you that I love you very much. I do, I really do. I love you very much in the Lord, and it has to be like that. I really do. And the elders love you in the Lord. And I want you to know that by and large, we labor and work for you out of love. So the people in our elders who are doing all the endless governance stuff that we have to do. They do it out of love. All the meetings that we have with people to encourage them, to disciple them, sometimes to say tough things, is out of love. Our elders who are responsible for our gospel partners Skype them endlessly out of love. Our elders who have oversight over broadly speaking, finance and buildings and searching, do so out of love. How do you know they do it out of love? You know how you know? Because you don't know they're doing it. I think that's the key. Because it's servant-hearted. It's not secret, it's servant-hearted. And I want to say to myself and to my fellow elders, if you are not laboring in love, then you need to step down. 
Hard work motivated by love is worthy of respect. Secondly, respect leaders who lead in the Lord. That's a great phrase. Those who, verse 12, are over you in the Lord. In the Lord. That phrase, in the Lord, is key. Good leadership is worthy of respect if the words in the Lord are there. If they're not there, it's not worthy of respect. What does it mean to lead in the Lord? It means elders who are absolutely clear that Chalmers Church is not their church. So here's a question that ministers are often asked. Where is your church? Or what's the church you lead? And let's give them the benefit of the doubt. We know what they mean. But there are a pile of ministers and elders and churches that think it's theirs. Who's leading Chalmers Church? This is Jesus' church, and he leads it through his word. The living word, through the written word, is the leadership of this church. He is the chief shepherd. The elders here are under shepherds. They're little shepherds that run around the field as best they can under him. Good leadership recognizes that. Good leaders serve the Lord Jesus. How do you know if they serve the Lord Jesus? Because they are humble and servant-hearted. They lead by example in Christ's likeness. They lead by godliness, by prayer, by evangelism. If your leaders love Jesus, if they lead in humility because they are serving him, if they set an example of Christ's likeness and leadership, then respect them and esteem them very highly in the Lord. Let me just reel in our elders for a minute because they're all about to resign because, of course, we mess up and all that stuff. It's the heart, though, isn't it? You know what it's saying. If your leaders work hard, lead in the Lord, respect them, and one third thing, if they have enough love for you to admonish you, the end of verse 12. Now, given what we have read in the letter, particularly the first half of chapter 4, there was stuff in the church in Thessalonica that needed sorting. People were living in a way that was contrary to God's word. And we can assume that the leaders in the church in Thessalonica had said something. They had corrected them, told them it was wrong. And that is not an easy thing for a leader to do. But it's the right thing. It's a good thing to do for the sake of someone's walk with the Lord and obedience to the Lord. The ten hardest pastoral situations I have ever had to deal with are probably the ten ones where I have had to say something that's strong and direct to people that needs to be sorted or changed in their lives. And I can assure you that when I went to do that, I had no heart to do it, but every instinct not to. And that's how it should be. But equally, one has to do it. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching and admonishing. These words go together in the New Testament again and again. Teach them and admonish them. Teach truth and hold people to that truth. And that kind of leadership, Paul says, is worthy of respect. Now, we can get this, I think. It's not leadership that always seeks to be popular. Now, there is a brand of leadership that does its very best to be unpopular all the time. It's not that either. It's just that leadership that seeks to do what is right. So I spent time yesterday speaking with a a church leader in a complex situation as to what to do. And uh, he asked me what I thought, and I said to him, you need to do what is right. 
you need to speak to people in the realm and at the level of principle, not in the realm or the level of the consequences or the costs. You need to do in the end what is right. You need to say what is right. And of course, a principle like that can be misused, overused, but the truth is that in most churches it is never used. And in the end, it leads to a loss of respect for the leadership of a church. You know, in a home, if you have children, you'll understand this. There are different periods in life with children that one parent tells them off and the other parent does the good stuff. And uh, with our boys, I tend to do the good stuff. I tend to go out and have fun and all the rest of it. And I'm going to kind of just swing the seesaw a little bit and be a bit more grumpy. Imagine a father in a home who never, ever, ever, ever admonished a child. When that child grows up, almost certainly they will have no respect for their father. Imagine a church where leaders never, ever admonished people when things were wrong. And remember what just precedes the admonishing? Laboring in love, love, love. Now, leaders in a church who work hard because they love you, who lead in the Lord, and you know, they know that Chalmers Church is not theirs. You see humility and godliness, and leaders who are prepared from time to time to say tough things. It may be corporately they say these things to the whole church. If that's what the leadership in a church is like, or rather by God's grace, forgiveness, and spirit within them, trying to be like, then respect them, submit to their leadership, and esteem them highly in love. Let me just, at risk, say, don't just tolerate them. Respect them, esteem them, love them. Why? Why? Look at the end of verse 13 for the sake of the unity of the church. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, I am very, very thankful to God for the peace and unity we have in this church. We have our struggles, yes, but by and large there is peace and unity. And that there is, straight as a die. And what a blessing it is, and may it long go on. Let's not presume it will, though. And the key to keeping it there is the right relationship between people in the church and those in leadership. Now, I could spend an hour or more giving you example after example where that key relationship is broken down, where the relationship between leaders and congregations is broken down, oftentimes because the leaders are not worthy of respect, and other times because they are and they are not given it. Both happen in churches. And when that key relationship breaks down, it normally lasts for five years. You might think it doesn't, but it does. It takes a long time for a church to get a major breakdown out of its system. During that five years, it'll probably not be sending gospel partners around the world or national partners into the country. It'll not be training people as well. It will certainly not be doing evangelism. There's no way if a church breaks down that the gospel will be ringing out into the city. No chance. 
So what is one of the devil's greatest tactics in a church is to break this key relationship between a church and its leaders. So there we go. Secondly, a right relationship with one another. Or rather, point one, sub point two. <laughs> right relationships with one another. This is really important. Let's read it again. We urge you, brothers, he's speaking to everybody here, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to the Lord. He's speaking to everyone in the church family, and these exhortations to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Paul is saying, everyone is to take this on board. It's not just the job of the minister. It's a risky sermon, this, for me to preach. Paul is saying it, not me. It's not just the job of the minister. Now, ministers need to learn that. Congregations need to learn that. Sometimes they both need to learn it together. It's not the job of the minister, nor is it just the job of the elders, nor is it just the job of the small group leaders. It is everyone's responsibility. It's what Paul is saying. It's very powerful stuff. He's not urging a few people to think and act like this. He's urging everyone in the church to think and act like this. It is a strong church when this attitude and actions that arise from it are pervasive through the church's veins. Now, just think of it practically. It's impossible in a church of 350 adults, and let me put myself on the line and say it's not because of a lack of hard work or willingness. It's impossible for me to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, seeing that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeking to do good to one another and to the Lord. It's impossible for me and it's impossible for the elders to do that because you just can't. Why? Because there are more than, well, how many people in a church at any one time need encouraged? 350 of them. How many people in a church at one time need patience? 349, you're the exception. How many people in a church need to be exhorted to seek to do what is good, to flee from error? 350 of them. And when this stuff runs through the veins and courses through the veins of the church, and you do it, or think like this, or proactive for the person in front of you, beside you, or in your small group, what happens is the temperature of spiritual quality in the church rises. So I think when you fill a bath... This image is uh, close to my mind at the moment because one of our children filled the bath and then forgot. (laughs) Daddy rescued it just in time. Just about just in time. And you know when you fill a bath, the water goes up. When you fill a church with people that think like this, the water rises in the church. The quality rises, the care rises, the life rises, the joy rises, it all rises. Of course, when leaders lead well, what do leaders do? They liberate the church to serve, to care. Everyone, that means you. That's a great phrase that preachers often use. Everyone, that means you. We're all sitting there thinking, not me, him, her. Everyone, that means you. It means you, it means you, it means me. Paul's describing a church which is proactive, not passive. Its members are proactive. And it's a difference between coming along and belonging. It's a big difference, isn't it? Now, let me say this. There are times in our lives when circumstances mean all we can do is come along. All we can do is just pitch up because we're under pressure, the stuff going on in our life. But there is all the difference in the world between coming along and belonging in the end. There is all the difference in the world 
between being related to someone and remembering that you are in their family. Too many churches are full of people who are second cousins, thrice removed, when in fact they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. In this room, there are only brothers and sisters in the Lord. There are no second cousins twice removed, brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's a powerful thing. And when that stuff courses through our veins as a church, the temperature rises. So think of your small group, if you're in one. Or think of, if you're not, seven or eight people in the church. If you can't think of them, think of the seven or eight people sitting in front of you or behind you. Or if this isn't the church family you normally come to, think of a church family you know well. Imagine going into your small group thinking like this. Who is there in this group where the stuff in their life that I know about that somebody needs to speak to them? Who is there that is faint-hearted? Who is there who is weak? Who is there in this group that tries our patience to the limit? It might be you. (laughs) It might be me. Who is it that bears a grudge against someone in the church? Who is it? Who is it that needs to be exhorted to do good? When you think like that, it's a powerful thing. Now, what do they mean? Admonish the idol. The idol may be a group of people in Thessalonica who had given up work and were sponging off the others. I think that was going on. They'd done it for the wrong reasons. Now, that's not relevant, I guess, in most churches, but we can apply it more generally. It's true of many churches, apparently, that 10% do 90% of the work. It's not true here, thankfully. It's not. I don't know what we run at. 70-30? That's probably pretty good this side of eternity. But it's a good note to strike, isn't it? When people get weary and knackered because they're bearing the load too much, you know what happens to them? They kind of lose that love for one another. You see, it's a kind of slippery slope. And you see the power of the collective encouragement from one another across the church to share the Lord, to kind of chivvy each other on. That's the idea. Admonishing, though, is often much more serious stuff. All over a church like Thessalonica or Chalmers, people know what's going on in different people's lives. Now, the church in Thessalonica probably had 50. We're about 75, 80 people here in this service. Imagine if this was just all we were. We would probably know what was going on in people's lives. But in a church that's got 350 people, you can't. I can't because I'm not a prophet. And the elders aren't prophets. And they just can't spend time with everybody all the time. If you know that someone in the church family is discouraged or lacks assurance or needs spiritual encouragement, why not send them a text, email them, Facebook them, or even better, if you're an old-fashioned person like me, write to them with a pen, or even better, speak to them with words. Why not you? Why not just do it? Don't feel that you can't. Don't feel that you've got to refer it up the chain. Don't feel you are the person God has given that knowledge. Bless them by doing it. And when it's a hard thing to see, do not be silent. It's true in my life as a Christian. It's true in my life as a minister. And my wife does this wonderfully well, but others as well. 
when tough stuff is spoken to you, you always are thankful for it in the end. Encourage the faint-hearted. What does that mean? I think he's referring to people in the church family who have doubts. Now, let me just say to you, if you have doubts, that's not a sign of a lack of faith if you're a Christian. It's a sign of faith, yeah? People in a church family who doubt, who lack assurance, some people don't, many do. Encourage them with the truth of God's word. Read the word of God with them. There's a lady in our church family, an elderly lady, who every sort of month or so sends me a little letter with a verse in it. And you know how many times that hits the spot? She doesn't know what's going on, but God does. Now, there's a side to that. that We don't take a pin and stick it in our Bibles and and hope we're going to find a verse. It might be something like, go out and hang yourself or something like that. Never do that, yeah? But you see the point. Somebody who's prayerful and thinking, what can I do to send this person to encourage them? The faint-hearted. Encouraging the faint-hearted might also embrace encouragement of those who have lost heart for the Christian life. Not one of us in this room who is a Christian has not experienced losing heart as a Christian. And what many of us in this room will have experienced is someone in the church family encouraging us when we were faint-hearted. Help the weak. People who are weak spiritually, people who are sick and dying, help them, strengthen them, establish them, care for them, talk to them, read with them, pray with them. Don't leave it as somebody else. You do it. All of you do it, Paul is saying. Paul says, you do it. All of you do it. Raise the temperature. Be patient with them all. Now, to encourage you, I have at long last finished a book on Daniel that I've been writing for as long as Daniel lived. And many of you have been praying. You can stop praying now. You can turn your prayers into thanksgiving. In the author's preface, the first words I wrote, and if you see the book sometime, you can see this. I thanked the editors and my fellow author for having the patience of a saint. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Never were truer words spoken into our normal church. Be patient with them all. Leopards, I'm told, do not change their spots, nor do Christians very quickly. It takes a lifetime often for someone to come to faith. The ups and downs, the setbacks and the struggles. And just, I think here, if I can be really practical, the general grist to the mill of getting on with this unlikely lot around you in church life takes patience, patience, patience. See that no one repays evil for evil, people bearing grudges against others, or even worse, getting their own backs from people. Snuff it out. A church is about forgiving and forgetting, not repaying. It might be that the application of today's sermon is that in your heart you forgive someone who's wronged you. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, summing it all up, it's quite a list. Paul is speaking to everyone in the church family to take this stuff on board. What wonderful potential there is. And let me say to you in Chalmers Church Life that this kind of right relationship stuff with one another is coursing through the veins of the church. You just need to see it. And Paul's, what's his often repeated phrase in this letter? You are doing it, but do it more. You are doing it, but do it more. Do it more. Do it more. And and he's not saying just a relentless kind of rod to break your back. He's just saying when you stand still and think you're doing it well, do it more and more. Keep going. Keep going. Keep loving. Keep caring. Keep admonishing. Keep exhorting. 
Third key relationship is a right relationship with the Lord Jesus, verses 16 to 22. And you see the logic of this. Right relationship, one, members, leaders. Two, right relationship with one another. Three, and of course, it's got to get to this, and this is the basis, the foundation stone, the stuff that undergirds it all. You've got to be right with the Lord Jesus. So elders who are not right with the Lord Jesus will not work hard out of love, will not work in the Lord, and will not admonish. Members who are not right with the Lord Jesus, living in the Spirit, will not respect those in leadership. A whole church family will not admonish the idle amongst them, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, seek everyone to do good, and run from evil if they are not themselves right with the Lord. It makes sense. So Paul says, 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. A better translation would be, do not extinguish the Spirit's flame. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, why do I think that what Paul is talking about here in this list is our relationship with the Lord Jesus? For two reasons. Because he says it, the heart of this little list, his words, this is the will of God in Christ. Do not extinguish the Spirit's flame. He's talking about living in Christ, life in the Spirit, That's the first reason I think Paul is talking about our relationship with the Lord Jesus. The second is this. It's logical. Our relationship with our leaders, with one another, they all depend on our right relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's why in churches, and there are many of them, when the elders are not Christians, it's a total disaster. Let me encourage us, just as I apply this, to hold the application to the church family. When you read this list, 16 to 22, don't apply them to your own life. Apply them to the church family. He's not lost that line. So apply them to a service like this when we all meet. What's he talking about? Apply it to service. Apply it to our corporate life. Rejoice always. Joy in our corporate life as a church. Joy in being a church, belonging to a church. Joy in our serving. Joy in our services. Today's been a happy day in Chalmers. It's been a joyful day. Not unusually so, but just a bit more than normally so. I don't know why, because we're preaching on joy, I think. Maybe God's just nudging us and saying, it's good to be part of a church. That, and Toby looking astonishingly cute earlier. Pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. Everything we do, our plans, our progress as a church is dependent on God, and that dependence is expressed how on our knees with that constant note of thanksgiving, 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 thanksgiving. Is that interesting, isn't it? How do you keep a right relationship with your leaders? How do you keep a right relationship with one another? How do you keep a right relationship with the Lord when you're under pressure? Keep saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Count your blessings one by one as the old hymn puts it. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now, my take on this is that when Paul wrote this letter, one of the earliest in the New Testament, there was no New Testament revelation like we have. We now have the full and final revelation of God in Scripture, all the New Testament, so we don't have prophecy to test in that sense. Is there still prophecy today? 
if by that you mean the application of God's word or the wisdom that uses God's word to apply to certain situations, well, maybe. But if by that you mean further or new revelation, then no. That's just my view, but it merits three weeks, not three sentences. And uh, we might look at that in more detail. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the last exhortation that he gives this church family is this. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain, and that word means have nothing to do with or make a clean cut with stuff that is evil. Sometimes churches have to hold fast to what is good and make a clean cut from what is evil. And in the end of the day, that is all about having a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we can make things more complicated than they are. You know these wee wristbands that children, teenagers have on, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I think often when we make the best decisions as elders and as a church, you've got these four letters on the wall, WWJD. What would the Lord Jesus have us do? Hold fast to what is good. Make a clean cut with what is evil. So, three key relationships that keep a church standing fast in the Lord. A right relationship with your leaders, a right relationship with one another, a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. When these relationships are strong, the church is strong. Now, you can feel that in your bones, can't you? You can understand it in your minds. It's just true. Now, as we come to a close, verses 23-24, a prayer and a promise. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Paul is praying for their sanctification, or their transformation into Christ-likeness. And let's uh, keep the corporate line, the church family line. Paul is praying that Chalmers Church will live as a church in a way that gives him pleasure and more and more. Paul is praying that we will be spurred on and press on in the Christian life. And Paul has an eye to the end of the race when with the coming of the Lord Jesus, we will be sanctified completely and all the struggles and battles for godliness that we know in our lives as Christians and as a church will be done. There will then be no need to study on Sunday mornings, 1 Thessalonians, that it might help us stand fast in the Lord. There will be no need to work hard at these relationships, members to elders, members to one another, all of us to the Lord Jesus, because we will be home with Jesus. What a wonderful prayer Paul prays. Just imagine if it were to come true. And it will, because it's a prayer that is a promise. And this is a very wonderful thing. Paul prays that we will be sanctified completely because it is God's will that we will be sanctified completely. So, for example, chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is a promise. God will do it. God is doing it. So, what does this mean for us as a church? How is it in the end that our elders 
The minister will lead well, work hard, labor in love, lead in the Lord, admonish you. How is it that we will respect that, that we will live in peace and unity? How is it that we will spur each other on in the Christian life? How is it that we will keep that right relationship with the Lord Jesus? Not ever in the end, fundamentally in our own strength, but because God wills it for us. You know, God has a passionate, burning desire that Chalmers Church will remain united. How will we find a building in the end and settle into it and get through all the complexities that that will involve and all settle into it and all come to like it and thrive in it and see the gospel flourish in it? Not in the end because we do it, because God does it. We have to lean on him. How in the end will we see these empty seats that we have in our different services on a Sunday Be filled up with people in the city who are not yet Christians. That's our prayer. That's what we're longing for. How in the end will it happen? Not because we do it, but because God does it. And how will we as a church keep on living in a way that pleases God? Because God... And so Paul ends the letter by encouraging Chalmers Church and the church in Thessalonica to lean back. Not to lean back and sun ourselves, but to lean back on the Lord to rest on him, to trust on him, and to remember that what we pray for has been promised. Now, the letter concludes with some personal remarks from the Apostle Paul. I, for many years, thought the Apostle Paul was quite a contrary fellow and quite a tough nut and quite feisty, and he is. He's the kind of leader you want in a church makes me shudder to think that the Apostle Paul wouldn't get the job of minister in most churches in our country anymore. But you know the Apostle Paul, as straight as a die as he is, is wonderfully loving and warm and kind and gracious and pastoral. And vulnerable, I guess. Let me read. And we get this tenacity and tenderness, this toughness and gentleness, fused in these final words. Brothers, he says, all of you, pray for us. He means Paul and Silas and Timothy. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I'd love to have the courage to encourage you all to kiss each other now. I'll let you do that afterwards if you like. Here's the toughness. I put you under oath to have this letter read to everybody. Don't spin it when you teach it. And his last words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Well, a wonderful letter. Let's pray that Chammer's Church will be like Christ's Church Thessalonica. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this great letter. It's practical, it's real, it's powerful, it's purposeful. We pray that these relationships in our church family would be right And thereby we would be at peace with one another, united and strong. What a wonderful prayer for our complete sanctification. Thank you, Lord, that it is being worked out amongst us. Help us to remember it is a promise. And Lord, we pray that the studies in these letters will really have helped us as a church family. 
And all that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.